Hey everybody, you're listening to the Clearer Thinking Podcast from Grace Valley Church in Dundas. I'm your host, Paul Vandenbrink, the lead pastor of Grace Valley Church. Thanks for listening. All right, guys, we are wading ever deeper into the ocean that is the five points of Calvinism. And let me give you a quick recap of last week's subject matter. We talked about uh, total inability, which is a subcategory of the doctrine of total depravity. And that doctrine, total depravity, it basically says that everyone has been corrupted by the fall and every part of everyone has been corrupted by the fall, which means, therefore, as total inability teaches, um, that we are unable to do any saving good nor are we able to choose to believe in Jesus apart from the prior intervention of God. So, in a sense, we're saying that human beings are no longer free in the same way that Adam and Eve were free before the fall. Remember, Adam and Eve, before the fall, they were created able not to sin. They chose to sin, and therefore the fall happened, and every human being since then is born not able not to sin. So we are born in bondage to our sinful natures. We are unable to love God or obey God, which means that we have got an obvious problem, right? I mean, how in the world does anybody ever desire to love God and believe in Jesus if we are born unable to do so? And that's a great question that we're going to try to answer today. So let me introduce you to another doctrine of Calvinism. It's called the doctrine of election. Now, this doctrine is probably the most well-known and at the same time most disliked of all the doctrines of Calvinism. You know, predestination. It's a swear word. Election. It's a swear word among some Christians because of the negative association that they have with those terms. Now, just like Total depravity, I think the term used to describe this doctrine is not very good. Unconditional election, I don't think is so great. I would prefer to use undeserved election because I think that it better emphasizes that salvation is a free gift of grace. At least it does so better than unconditional election does. I mean, think about it. Salvation is conditional. It's not unconditional. It is conditional. It's conditional upon the requirements of salvation being met. The whole problem is that human beings can't meet the requirements. And so Jesus met them on our behalf. That's the gospel. <laughs> and so to call election unconditional, I think anyway, is potentially misleading. Okay, enough of arguing over terms. Um, because what's most important is actually understanding what this doctrine means. And to define it is pretty simple. If you're a Christian... It is by sheer grace and not on the basis of God seeing anything in you or foreseeing anything about you prior to your election. In other words, if you're a Christian, it's because God has chosen you before time began. He chose you to be his child so that in time, in history, he would overcome your inability to believe in him and enable you to trust in Jesus. Let me put this another way. The Old Testament and the New Testament both say that if you believe in Jesus, you believe because God has chosen you. He came to you. 
and he opened your heart, and that's the reason that you believe. Now, as I said, this is taught in both Testaments. And probably the biggest, uh, or probably the most well-known, I should say, passage in the Old Testament where this is explained is Deuteronomy chapter 7. In verse 6, it says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, to be his treasured possession. Pretty clear, pretty obvious, right? You go to the New Testament. Jesus is talking to his disciples in John 15, and he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you. And in John chapter 6, verse 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. One more example, this time from the Apostle Paul. He's preaching to the Gentiles, and in Acts chapter 14, verse 38, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, that is, his uh, his gospel proclamation, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and listen to this, and all who were appointed for, for eternal life believed. All who were appointed for eternal life believed. Not all who heard the gospel, not all who made a decision, but all who were appointed for eternal life believed. If you believe, that's election. If you believe, it's because God came to you and opened your heart by the Holy Spirit. Let me say it this way. If God did not intervene in your life, you could have a thousand chances to choose Christ as your Savior or to choose to be your own Savior, and you would choose yourself every single time. But if God has chosen you, then at some point, it might be after hearing the gospel ten times, it might be after hearing it a hundred or a thousand times, but at some point, you will come to faith and you will believe. That's the doctrine of election. Now, next week, I'm going to have to deal with some of these objections to this doctrine because I know you have some, and in fact, I have some too. But for the rest of this podcast, I just want to talk about how this doctrine actually works according to the Bible and then give some what I think are really wonderful practical implications of it. I actually believe that this doctrine is central. It is, a, it is crucial to solving the world's problems. Who would think it, hey? This dusty, old, 17th century, unappealing teaching of the Bible could be the key to changing the world. But I think it actually is. And we're going to get into that next week. But what I want to do is show how this teaching actually works according to the Bible. And the reason I want to is because I think that one of the problems people have with this doctrine actually arises from their failure to understand how it works. People have the impression that God sort of goes around looking over the human race and, and he, he flips some hidden religious switch that they have on the back of their heads or something. Like it's impersonal, it's arbitrary, it's practically mechanical. But that is not how the Bible describes it at all. One of the great pictures of how it actually works comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In verses 18 to 25, Paul is describing how the gospel is foolishness to people who are not being saved. So these are both Greeks and Jews who, for different reasons, both think the gospel is foolishness. It's stupid. It's 
not worth believing. But then Paul says that for those who are being saved, whether they are Jews or Greeks, the gospel is the power of God. And so the question is, what's the difference between these two types of people? You have Jews and Greeks who don't believe, and you have Jews and Greeks who do believe. Jews and Greeks who aren't being saved, Jews and Greeks who are being saved. And the difference, Paul says in verse 24, is this. Listen to it. To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Very interesting. To those whom God has called, Christ is the power of God. See, Paul is talking about what's called effectual calling. The difference between these two groups of people is not their culture, it's not their level of education, it's not their socioeconomic status, you know, it's not their class, it's not even whether or not they've heard the gospel, because they've all heard it. The difference is that some were called by God effectively, that is, they actually responded to or believed, we'd use that word, believed the gospel when they heard it. So how does election actually work? Well, it works through what's called effectual calling. What is a call? Think about this. You're listening to me right now, I hope. You're already listening to me, so it would be silly for me to try to get your attention, right? Yell at you, hey, listen up. I already have your attention. A call is disruptive. It's an interruption. It's an intervention. It assumes that I have to tell you something that you don't already know. Let's say you're at home and there's a tornado coming to your home and I call you on the phone and I say, hey, there's a tornado coming to your home. That, that's an interruption, right? It's an interruption to your day. It's disruptive. But here's what's so great about it. It's essentially positive because it makes you aware of a reality that you didn't know about before. You didn't know about the tornado before. You didn't know. And I called you. And so I have enhanced your awareness of reality. I've made you able to respond because you now know what's going on. You've been disrupted, interrupted in a positive way. This is how election works. Remember Arminius, I told you about him uh, a few weeks ago? He didn't like this doctrine because he thought that election undermines human free will. People have a problem with election because they think that, that we don't get a choice in whether to believe or not. Like I said before, they think that God's just coming along, he's flipping the switch, you have no say in the matter, you just kind of do. You do it because it's been done to you. But according to this text, that's not how it works. Rather, it works through a call. Think of it this way. Imagine people running blindfolded toward the gaping opening of a, volca of a volcano. Right? They're, they're running blindfolded to their deaths. They're on a suicide mission. The doctrine of election does not mean that you knock them out and drag them away from the volcano and then, you know, they kind of start to wake up and, and then they resist you, but you go, no, you're coming with me and you drag them away anyway. No, no, no. You, you cry out to them. You say, hey, you're about to die. You're heading into a volcano. And they might say, no, we're not. We're on vacation and we're on our way to Miami Beach. We can feel it getting warmer already. And so what do you do? 
I mean, your message to them is foolishness. They won't listen to you. They don't want to believe it. The doctrine of election is this. You pull the blindfold off. And once you do, the person realizes they're heading to the volcano and they say, oh, I don't want to do that. I better get out of here. That's the call, see? The person sees more of reality than they did before. Is that a violation of their free will? Not at all. In fact, it's the opposite. You're giving them more free will. You can't exercise free will without access to reality. If some reality is hidden from you, your free will will be compromised, at least to a degree. The more of reality you have access to, the more you can exercise your free will. The doctrine of election gives you access to more of reality. You actually make a choice. You really do. You exercise your free will based upon the reality that is available to you. Now, as I said, this is how election works. That's how it's played out in our lives. It's not every aspect of election because, of course, there's more. There's not just calling. There's regeneration as well. You know, the Bible teaches that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. So in order for us to respond to the call, we need to be made alive, right? A corpse can't respond to stimuli. You can yell at a corpse and tell it to get up all you want, but it's not going to move. And the Holy Spirit, he has to regenerate us, make us spiritually alive so that we can respond to the call. And I am going to unpack that teaching, I hope, a little bit more in upcoming episode. But I said I wanted to apply this doctrine, right? If this doctrine is true, how should it affect how you actually live each day? And I'm going to give you four quick ways. And the first way is this. If this doctrine is true, then we should love more doggedly. See, the doctrine of election is all about love. If your significant other, you're, you're dating someone or you're married or whatever, if your significant other comes to you at some point and says, do you love me? You're going to say yes. Well, I hope you'll say yes. You should say yes. And, but they might respond with, um, why do you love me? And you might want to say, well, because you're pretty, uh, you're smart, you're handsome, you're good at fixing things, uh, you make good money. <laughs> I don't know. You could say any number of things, right? Some of them could be kind of shallow and others may not be all that shallow. And those things might be true, but you shouldn't say them, really. <laughs> you shouldn't. What you should say is, I love you because I love you. Yeah, you should. I love you because I love you. That's how God loves us, you know. If you ask God, why do you love me? His answer is, because I love you. If you say it's because you're smarter or prettier or better looking or more fun or whatever, any of those things can be taken away at some point, and therefore the love is not unconditional. The love could be in jeopardy if those attributes in the one you are loving are lost. Look, you and I, sometimes we can be very unlovable, but God never stops loving us. He never gives up on us because we are unconditionally elected. And so we should love the same way. We should never give up on others. We should never drop others. Of course, we should not let them burn us out, right? Um, but we shouldn't stop loving them ever because God has done that for us first. That's the first thing. The second thing is, is that it should make us tremendously approachable. Humble, cooperative, approachable people. Why are you a Christian? 
According to election, the only answer to that question is grace. That's why you're a Christian. And if that's true, it should make you incredibly humble. You either believe in election or you believe in some form of salvation by works. There really is no middle ground. And I, I'm going to talk more about this next week because this is where I really think this doctrine is the key to changing the world. But but for now, let me just let me just ask you this. Why are you a believer and your friend or your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or your husband or your wife or your boss or your employee, why are they not? If you believe in the doctrine of election, you say it's because God chose me. It's all of grace. I had nothing to do with it. See, Christians are God's chosen people, not his choice people. Do you know the difference? You go to a fancy vintner, and he has all kinds of different wines, right? He's selected all these wines to be part of the suite of wines that he sells. But some of those wines are different from others. They're, they're special. They have a special grape, or they were for, you know fermented differently or bottled differently or something like that. They're his choice wines, okay? There's something about them that makes them the choice wines. That's not how election works. We are not God's choice people. We are his chosen people. There is nothing special in us, but rather, because we're chosen, we're special. Again, in, in Deuteronomy 7, God says something to Israel fascinating. He says, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Do you catch that? It's a, it's a circular argument. I didn't love you and rescue you because you were the best people. You weren't. But because I loved you, I rescued you. This should make us so humble and cooperative because we're no different than anybody else. If you believe, listen, if you believe the doctrine of election, you can't even look down on people who don't believe the doctrine of election <laughs> because you realize that everything is a gift. Even your understanding of the doctrine of election is a gift. Here's a Christian with their so-called bad theology. Here's, an, here's me with my so-called good theology. The sin in my life makes me nowhere near as good as my theology should make me. And the grace in their life makes them way better than their theology should make them. And, and since everything comes from undeserved grace, then we should be willing to help anybody— in Luke chapter 6, Jesus says that you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to care for them. You're supposed to give your cloak to them if they ask for it. Feed them if they need it. Nourish them. Be kind to them. Your enemy. Because then you will look like your father who is kind to the wicked and ungrateful. And you think, yeah, oh, you know, God is kind to those wicked and ungrateful. Wait a minute. Jesus is talking about me. I'm the wicked and I'm the ungrateful. <laughs> That's who I am. And so we meet people who are completely bankrupt because of their own decisions, and we help them anyway. Okay? They don't deserve our help. They've abused the law of God. They lie. They cheat. They do drugs. They 
have illicit sex and now their lives are messed up as a result of it. They've made their bed and you may want to think to yourself that they ought to lie in it, but actually you got to remember that when you look at each and every one of those people, you are looking into the mirror. That's you. That's me. And that's who Jesus came for. The deserving poor. You ever say to yourself, I'll help the deserving poor. Who's the deserving poor? Did Jesus come to save only the deserving poor? Those who didn't get themselves into trouble? Of course not. Third thing, if the doctrine of election is true, we should be more joyful and playful than everybody else on earth. If someone asks you, why are you a Christian? You should give your answer with a measure of wonder and awe. You should say, yeah, I am. Not of course, but yeah, I am. Go figure. I mean, it's all of grace. It's all a gift. And we should constantly be thinking to ourselves, this is incredible. Me, a Christian. Every time you open the Bible and you like what you're reading, you should say, this is amazing. Every time you even want to pray at all, you should be saying, wow, I want to pray. That you even care about your sin. That you even feel bad about it. You should consider that a miracle. The Bible says no one seeks for God, not one. So we should have a wonder and an amazement that we believe at all. You know, uh, people sometimes, they say, I want to be closer to God, but I just don't feel him working in my life. Or I feel distant from God. I want him. Why doesn't he reveal himself more to me? And ex I want to experience him more. Frankly, you're giving yourself too much credit, friends. Because your dissatisfaction with your spiritual life is a result of his presence in your life. <laughs> your yearning for more of God is evidence of his love and work in your life. It's a little bit like saying, you know, those people are like, you know, I wish I was elect. You know, it's only the elect who wonder about their election. The non-elect don't care. If, if God is not at work in our lives, we're hard as nails. We don't care. We don't we don't have an interest in the things of God unless he works in us. So we should be lost in awe and wonder at the fact of our salvation at all. And then finally, because of the doctrine of election, we should never, ever, ever be cynical about anything in our own lives, um, especially our sin. We should never say, oh, you know, I give up. I've tried so hard to deal with this problem, but I'm not getting anywhere. This is just how I am. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Forget about it. Paul says in Philippians 1 verse 6, He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know what that means? That means that God simply must triumph over every part of my life that displeases him. And so we should expect change. We should anticipate change. We should look for change. We should strive towards change. Never being satisfied with our spiritual state. Further up and further in is how we want to go. Further up and further in. That's from the last battle but, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. They finally get to the end of the story. They make it into Aslan's new kingdom of Narnia. And it just, every step they take into it is better than the one before. They want to go further up and further in. That's the doctrine of election, friends. Pretty remarkable, eh, if you think about it. Like, the implications of it just go on and on and on and on. We've, we've talked about a bunch of them. We're going to talk about objections to it and see some more implications next time. But I hope this has been useful for you and has been food for thought. I have 
talked far too long. I apologize, but this is a massive topic. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time. <laughs>